Jesus is very take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts tonight, the book of Acts. Last week, of course, we began dealing with this idea that God's plan always includes the world. We said that God's word includes the world, God's judgment includes the world. And then we said God's salvation includes the world. And before we was done, we were saying, you know, let's do a little bit of a Bible study and find out how God took salvation, took the gospel to the entire world. And uh, so uh, we started doing that. And in the midst of all of that, we were in the book of Acts, of course. And we noted Pentecost. Right off the bat, of course, Jesus Christ shows up in the person of the Holy Ghost. He just begins to empower the church in a way that just was phenomenal, astronomical, amazing. And we found that the uh, recipients of the Spirit of God that were indwelled and, and, and uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we found that they were faithful. We found that they were fellowshipping one with another. We found that they were fruitful as a result of their faithfulness and fellowship. 
And then we started talking about the fact that from that point on, preaching began to take over. And people were proclaiming the Word of God, preaching the truth of the Word of God. And in Acts chapter 4, we began to read about how they were preaching the Word of God in a very busy, uh, they were very busy about that idea. They taught, they preached. And as a result of that, uh, you know, I mean, excuse me, I mean, they were, they were busy about it, but then also they were very boisterous about that. And because they were so busy and boisterous about the Word of God and about the resurrected Christ, there were some authorities that were not happy at all with them. Before you know it, they're trying to take them into custody and place them in prison and threatening them and all of the things that go with that, ultimately persecuting and even martyring these men of God. And we saw that they're just, they were very bold with their, their faith, very bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, how did God get the gospel to the entire world? Well, he did it with men and women who weren't ashamed of him, men and women who were very busy about the work, boisterous and loud, and ultimately, as a result, they were blessed. And we saw the number of the men, even, that were saved there in chapter 4 was about five, was 5,000. I mean, can you imagine that? 5,000 men. And we said, didn't add the women, add children. You got a lot of people getting saved here. I mean, it's a big harvest of souls. But then we noticed that something else started taking place. Not only did Pentecost and preaching take place, but now we have this multiplication, multiplying that's taking place. And uh, there in Jerusalem again, as we read chapter 5, the Bible tells us in verse 14, and the believers were the more added to the church. Multitudes, both of men and women. Again, added to the church. What They were being included in the body of Christ, which meant naturally that they're part of the local church. Listen, every believer needs a local church. Every believer needs to function in that local church and, and be involved in that local church. And we see evidence of that in the scriptures throughout. Now, again, continuing on, they're multiplying and multiplying. Uh, then we noted that, again... They weren't just adding, they were multiplying again. It wasn't just like one person was getting someone saved and then that just kind of went on forever. No, then that person was trained and taught and they were going out and telling someone else about the Savior. And so now it wasn't just addition, just 11 of us winning as many people as we possibly can to Christ. Now it's these 11 leading 11 and 11 being trained and taught, becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. They then go out and win another 11 while we win another 11. And then those 22 win 22 and so forth and so on. A multiplication took place, as we saw there in Jerusalem. The Bible says in Acts 6-7, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Then we saw a very important event take place in Jerusalem. We know that God had intended in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8, to go into uh, ultimately the whole world. And yet we know that salvation and the, 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 you know this... Uh, um, gospel began to, to really take form and shape in Jerusalem there. We have Pentecost. We have the church growing there. And those people were very content to remain there. They, they found fellowship there. They found great success there. Again, their ministry was just booming. And so what we found then in, in this case is that they were content to remain in Jerusalem, although God had told them in chapter, eight, ch uh, chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended back to be of the Father, that he wanted them to go into all, you know, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. He wanted them to continue to expand, to go out from their location and ultimately reach not only their nation, but the world. Well, that was not happening like God intended. And so a very important, uh, some things started taking place. One, Stephen. Stephen turns around and gets persecuted and, and ultimately martyred for his faith. Well, of course, we know that there was a young man by the name of Saul, and Saul was uh, holding the very garments of those that stoned him. 
and uh, he eventually becomes a very zealous uh, uh, you know, uh, Judaizer, and he ultimately is trying to uh, snuff out Christianity. And so we find that we have this persecution that takes place. And boy, I'll tell you what, people were excited about that. A lot of people were happy that this man was martyred, happy that he lost his life for his faith. And so, of course, the authorities go, hey, this worked out pretty good for us. Seems like everybody got in on, you know, enjoyed that rock concert we had. So I think we'll just throw a few more of them. You guys, yeah, I know. You guys didn't get that. Okay, you're sleeping already. Okay? So anyway, so they, they went ahead and decided we're going to go ahead and get the other disciples. We're going to start reaching out. We're going to start expanding this, this persecution. And they did just that. They, they began to persecute more and more and more. And with that persecution, in Acts chapter 6, this, uh, in, in Acts chapter 8, this is where we ended last week. Acts chapter 8, we're just going to touch on it. But look there in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. But we're going to find now that God's going to make sure that plan comes together. The exact one that he gave the people of God. The one that they were a little bit hesitant to fulfill and to carry out. Now all of a sudden he says, let me give you a little boost. Let me give you a little help. I'm going to go ahead and allow Stephen to be martyred here. I'm going to go ahead and let persecution begin to take root and really start to affect the church. And to the point where ultimately you're going to run for your lives. Now notice what happens here in Acts chapter 8. And we'll move right along here. It says Acts chapter 8. Verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death, and at the time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the leadership remains behind. Those that are being saved and discipled are now headed out. This is why it's important that, listen, this is why it's important that we, we disciple people. And it's not the church's job as a whole necessarily. It's our job as individuals too. We've got to understand that the church as a whole is responsible to disciple, yes. But the people of God have to be willing to put themselves out. It takes a lot of effort to disciple somebody. It's not, like, it's not just like calling them up and saying, hey, how you been? Good to see you. That's part of it. But you have to teach them the word of God. You've got to teach them the application of the, the word of God. Your life has to be in order because they're going to take note of your life and they're going to think that's what the Christian life's about. So if they're coming to your house for discipleship and you and your wife are slinging pans and cussing at one another, that's what they're going to think Christianity's all about. I mean, you got to understand that there's more to it than just teaching a, a Bible lesson once a week. It's about having a lifestyle that can be passed on to a new believer, to somebody to say, this is what your life should be like. I don't know what it's like now, and in most cases it should be wrong, because all they have is the influence of Satan in their life and this world system. But the fact is now is they're going to see what the light can do for them. And they're going to see it firsthand through your life, not through your lessons. And discipleship's about your life being transferred. It's about reproducing yourself in the life of someone else. If I talk to you about your children today, and I said, well, you know, what, 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 tell me about your children a little bit. Many people would say something like, well, you know, it's a funny thing about my kids. It seems like the, the best things that, you know, my best quality traits, they don't seem to want to grab hold. They always grab a hold of the bad ones. You ever notice that? Have you ever talked to parents and they'll say stuff like that? It just seems like they always want to, you know, the ones I want them to get, they don't. And the ones I didn't really want them to grab hold of, they got it. Well, guess what? Guess what? As a Christian, guess what the, that your disciple will catch on to probably. 
That's why you have to make sure there's no kinks in the armor. That's why you've got to work hard at being what you're supposed to be. That's why your devotional life has to be what it ought to be. And that's why your church attendance ought to be what it ought to be. And that's why you ought to be faithful in service and content with the, the leadership and loving the leadership and not talking negative about the leadership and not being negative about your pastor and not being critical about the plan and the, 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 the work of the God at the church house. Because let me tell you something. If there's one thing your disciple, if there's one thing your new convert will catch on to, it's your critical spirit. Of all the things that you can share with them in that book right there, they'll catch you more than they'll catch it. That's why we, that, in, in Jerusalem, it wasn't long. And here's why this is important. It wasn't long after they got plugged into the faith, after they got put into the church, the body of Christ, into the local church, that they were automatically being scattered abroad. Listen, if they had not been grounded early on in their Christian life, if we had waited for a year, two years, or three to finally get to them, they would have left and they would have never done anything on behalf of Christ because they'd have still been babes in the Lord. And let me tell you something. As soon as you lead someone to Christ, you've got to start plugging them in because it may just be three months. It may be four months. It may be six months that their job changes location and they have to leave you and leave the church and go somewhere else to minister and to serve. It may be that just maybe something happens in their life where they have to take a new direction in life and it just happens that they're led away from community baptist temple somewhere else i'm just telling you you don't know how long you got we have to invest in them as soon as we possibly can because these people were scattered abroad everywhere man the apostles and the they stayed behind they were still in jerusalem you know who went these they went everywhere and the bible tells us what they did they were scattered throughout Devout men ultimately carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Notice every house. He, wasn't, he was turning over every stone. And therefore, therefore, as a result of this persecution, as a result of husbands being thrown in jail, wives being taken to prison, children being separated from their families, as a result of this persecution... The Bible tells us that the gospel now is going to take a new direction. It's going to go not just to Jerusalem now. It's going to go out throughout their area. Notice it says, and it says here, they went abroad. It says, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching word. Everywhere they went, they told about Jesus Christ. They taught the gospel. They gave the word of God. They told about a resurrected Christ. Boy, I'll tell you what, those authorities, they thought they had it figured out. They were going to snuff out the work of God. They were going to snuff out the message of God. But boy, what they ended up doing is lighting a fire. Because what happened was, is now here these disciples are, or these apostles, they're still in Jerusalem. They still have the same problem that they had before they started their persecution. These big mouth disciples, over these big mouth apostles, preaching and proclaiming a resurrected Christ. Guess what? They're still in Jerusalem. But the problem is, everybody else went everywhere teaching the exact same thing they did. They'd have been better off to not persecute them and let them stay in Jerusalem and be rebellious and disobedient to God's plan. But God knew it would take persecution, and he allowed it to happen. And so there they go. It's amazing. You say, how did the gospel get around the world? Persecution. That's how it happened. You say, what's it going to take in America to have revival? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, if history repeats itself like it normally does, persecution. Nonetheless... 
verse 7, uh, uh, seven and what comes up after that? Well, again, they're scattered abroad everywhere. Now something else takes place. We've got a guy by the name of Philip. Philip, he, he's, we're going to find that Philip is going to end up preaching to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5 now, the next verse down, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Um, we know what the Samaritans are about. We, we, we know that that, of course, is a, um, a byproduct of the Assyrian captivity. We know that the, the Jews intermarried with those Gentile Assyrians, and as a result, there became a race called the Samaritans. We understand that. The people, the Samaritans, are a byproduct of Gentile-Jew intermarriage relationships. And as a result of that, the Jews had a real problem with them. They, they, they weren't Gentiles. They were Gentiles, but they were half Jew, half Gentile, so to speak. And as a result of that, boy, there was some real racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. Now, we find here in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, now a few verses down, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So Philip goes down to Samaria and has this revival service. Man, these Samaritans are getting saved. And uh, uh, so we, we have these Jews that have been being dealt with, and God primarily dealt with the Jew in the book of Acts. You'll see there's transition taking place from the from, from, from the, uh, Israel to the church. There's transition taking place uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament or to grace. You'll see that there's also this transition taking place between God dealing with the Jew to dealing with the Gentile. So now what we have is a half-Jew, half-Gentile being dealt with, and uh, Philip's doing the work. He's preaching, proclaiming, and the Holy Spirit is coming down on them. They're being saved. Now, notice that they hear about this. So what does the church do? They send some of their top dogs. They send some of their big boys out there, Peter and John. If we can get Peter and John down there, we'll check them out. We'll make sure this is the real deal. This won't be some fake revival. This won't be some emotional you know, outpouring. This will be the real deal. Well, they did send them down there. And guess what they found? It was the real deal. People were being saved. Even Samaritans. Can you believe that? A Samaritan could be saved. Amazing, isn't it? So anyway... Uh, Acts 8.25 then, and they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So they're, they're in on it now. I mean, it's spreading. So we're going from Jerusalem now. All these people are getting spread out and abroad, preaching the gospel, the word of God, the resurrected Christ. Uh, this Philip here, he's preaching to the Samaritans even. He's crossing over Jew lines now and going into the like, kind of Jew-Gentile line here. And, and he's being received, and the Holy Spirit's being accepted, and Christ is being glorified. Well, now we have the, the, the conversion of a very important figure in, in church history, a guy by the name of Saul. Saul, of course, you know him as Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, look over there. We see that he here in the passage, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, we know that ultimately... We could read the passage, and we're going to note this is the salvation of this particular man by the name of Saul, who ultimately will be called Paul. I do want you to notice, however, I want you to take your Bible and look over the book of Acts, chapter 26. And I want you to understand and recognize what his real purpose was in being saved, what God had for him specifically. Notice what his job would be. Why did he save him? Well, Paul's going to tell us why the Lord led him to Christ, why he showed such great mercy on his life, why he showed extra, ex, uh, exhibited such grace in his life. Here it is now, Acts chapter 26, verse 16. He's talking about this experience again. He's relating the story, and he says that the, that the Lord said, But rise and stand upon thy feet. 
For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Who's he sending Paul to, he said? The Gentiles. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now understand that this particular man here, this Saul, this who to be Paul, at this point he's Paul when he's relating the story here. But this guy was a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, if anybody hated the Samaritans and hated the Gentiles, he would have done it. And yet here he is now, a child of God now, saved out of this sinful mindset that he had, this deceptive culture that he was living in. He believed that he was as right as right could be, murdering, persecuting Christians. He was a Jew of the Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He was confident that what he was doing was spot on. He gets saved and all of a sudden he sees Jesus Christ and God for who he really is. And he recognizes that the very one he was supposedly serving was the very one he was crucifying and persecuting. And don't think that doesn't happen every day in Christianity. Our view of God is so skewed and messed up by this world system and by the deception of Satan, we can't even fathom it. And if we're not careful, and if we're not in this book, and if we're not truly understanding and reading it and allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, we will take away a false God. We've got to be careful with that. And that's exactly who Paul was serving, a false God. He thought it was the real deal, but it wasn't. And so we find Paul, Paul now at this point saying, I, I have a purpose for living. God's given me my mission already. Now that doesn't always happen to us when we first get saved. We don't go, wow. God goes, oh, by the way, I want you to be in charge of this particular ministry and I want you to go do this over here and win these people and focus. He doesn't do that usually when we get saved. But in this case, it was a very unique situation. And he says to Paul, this is the purpose I've, I've I've done what I've done in your life because you are going to go to those Gentiles and you are going to give them me and their lives are going to be transformed and changed and it's going to turn the world upside down for me. And boy, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He went to the Gentiles. He fulfilled his purpose and his call. But you've got to remember now, Peter, though, possessed the keys to the kingdom. Now remember, if you can go back, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 real quick. This is interesting. Now, again, we're in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Okay, so in chapter, in chapter 6, you know, we, we, we're noting a number of things. Excuse me, I, I mean, as we, we looked at um, chapter 5, we're seeing multiple people being saved. We're seeing that, 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 that the disciples are being multiplied and the word of God is being multiplied and increased. In chapter 7, we see Stephen being stoned. In chapter 8, we, we notice that this persecution increases and the, the people of God in Jerusalem are scattered abroad, taking the gospel. The disciples are left in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, uh, you know, chapter 8 also, we see Philip going to Samaritans, the, the Samaritans and we see these half-Jew, half-Gentiles being saved now. Great revival taking place. Proof positive the Holy Spirit of God is working in their life. And then in chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. 
who ultimately becomes Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentile, ultimately. But notice what happens here. When we think about all this, we go, okay, well, everything's on cue. We're moving forward. We are. God's going to reach the world with the gospel, and yet there's somebody that holds the keys to all of this. His name is Peter. Notice the Bible says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys unlock doors. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever uh, thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It would be Peter who would unlock the door of salvation to the Jew. Remember? Pentecost. He preached this great sermon. The Holy Spirit comes down. The Jew receives the Spirit of God. But now, hold on. There's another people that need to be reached. Notice it's keys, not keys. So that we have a people called the Gentiles. A door needs to be unlocked so that salvation can come to the Gentiles. And guess who's going to unlock it? Peter. Chapter 10, he unlocks that door. We now have the apostle to the Gentile that's been saved. He's being prepared and ready for the mission that God has for him. But now we have Peter on his heels coming along and saying, let me prepare the way. Let me go ahead and unlock the door so that you can go do the work God's called you to. And so what we find then is we find this Peter going to Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Notice in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Chapter 10, verse 43. The Bible says, and, and again, remember he's praying, and let me just set the tone, the stage. He's praying there on the rooftop, and, um, you know, the Lord sends a basket down filled with all these animals, and he, and he says, eat, and Peter says, I can't eat that. Are you kidding me? That's all unclean. And God goes, no, you know, let, let, me, let, let me do that again. You didn't get it. You see all these ants eat. I can't eat that. I'm a Jew. Jews don't eat that stuff. That's unclean. And God says, did I not tell you to eat? Since when do you just disobey God? You do, you do. See, you, you have these preconceived ideas based on your, your false, fa false uh, view of what religion really is. There's been a change, Peter. You may not have noticed it. You may not realize it. But the fact is there's been a change. And it's not just about you and the Jewish faith anymore. This is about me and, my, and the faith in me. It's about Christ. Uh, before it's over with, this Gentile sh uh, shows up, this servant shows up and says, Hey, by the way, my master's asking for you, Peter. Who's your master? Cornelius, a Roman, a Jew. And he's like, the Lord says, you go with him. He's like, oh, okay. You taught me a lesson here to eat what you tell me to eat, even though it wasn't accepted by the Jew. Now a Gentile shows up, wants me to go and take faith to them, when actually the faith goes to the Gen Jew. I know Jews are supposed to be reached. Gentiles, they're just they're dogs. They deserve hell. And God says, <clears throat> they're not unclean. If I say they're not unclean, you go to them. So what does he do? Peter now, who holds the keys of the kingdom, he goes on and over to Cornelius' house. And while he's there, we see what transpires. And to him, verse 43, give all the prophets witness, he's preaching to him now, that through his name, <clears throat> whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Now, what was the evidence of the Holy Spirit in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, in Pentecost? Holy Spirit fell on them. They what? Spoke in what? 
Yeah, he spoke in tongues, okay? Uh, there's a bunch of Jews around now. And there's some Gentiles. What are these Gentiles going to do then if the Holy Spirit falls on them? They're going to speak in tongues. You say, but why don't we? There's no Jews around. The Jew requires a sign. And early on in church history, the, the Jews trying to figure this all out. And the fact is, is that God's saying, I'm, you Jews have rejected me now for the third time. Remember, they rejected him in Matthew chapter 11. They rejected him at the cross of Calvary, crucify him. And they rejected him with Stephen when he, they offered another opportunity to the Jew to receive. Instead, they rejected him again, uh, uh, martyred Stephen. And guess what? Jesus was standing. He wasn't standing just because all the saints come. I, I personally don't believe Jesus stands for every saint that dies. I just don't believe that. Otherwise, he'd never be sitting. And yet the Bible tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So what I think is he was ready to step down out of glory, down to earth where he belongs, and kick off what we would consider a millennium, or at least the tribulation period. Fulfill that. So what we find here is that now all of a sudden, They've, they've passed up. Three strikes, you're out. And all of a sudden, God turns his attention to who? The Gentile. And here we are. We've got Peter now preaching to Cornelius and these Gentiles. They received the Holy Ghost just like the Jews did. And Peter looks around and goes, Wow! Gentiles! Gentiles are being saved. He's amazed. And, the, and they of the circumcision, which believed, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because then on Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. These people were like amazed. These Jews that went with him were like, are you kidding me? I'm telling you, the Gentiles, the Gentiles are speaking in tongues. The Gentiles have the Holy Spirit of God on, upon them. It's just like us. Boy, they, they went back and started talking that stuff. And I'm telling you what, that created a real stir. Real mess. Paul himself says in Romans 11:13. now, excuse me, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Peter, so he unlocks the door now. So now salvation has come to the Jew. Peter preaches Pentecost. Holy Spirit descends. Now we have the Holy Spirit descending upon a Gentile. The keys of the kingdom have been used up. Now the Gentile has salvation available to them. And guess who comes along behind him? Paul, who is the apostle of Gentiles. In Romans eleven thirteen, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, insomuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. I am the apostle to the Gentile of the Gentile. <clears throat> I specifically have been called to go to you. And so Paul and Barnabas make their way out into Asia Minor and they go out preaching the gospel. And boy, I'll tell you what, people are being saved. Lives are being changed. It would be a hard sell later down the road for Paul who would try to prove and tell the leadership at Jerusalem about all these Gentiles coming to Christ. And he did in chapter 15. I mean, before it was over with him and Peter going at it. I mean, there's, there, there's a little bit of contention there. Because they're still having a hard time believing that Gentiles could be saved. Hey, but the God's... You've got to understand something, though. I mean, God's plan includes the world. And, and, and the Jews were just a small group of people. And God used them to bring the oracles of God, the word of God, to man. 
and then God turned around and used them to kick off what would be the, the greatest revival in history and ultimately enable the Gentile even and the world to come to Christ. So we have Paul and Barnabas now. They're going about winning people to Christ. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And that's something. The Gentiles are being saved. Now, I want you to notice the last thing, a testimony. Look at you in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And again, I, I keep saying over and over again, and I've said it too many times probably, but God's plan always includes the world, and his plan of salvation includes the world. So watch this now. <clears throat> Someone says, well, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if God's salvation could be around the whole world? Well, it has been. Let's notice what it says here. In chapter Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the Bible says, and again, there's contention here, there's persecution taking place, and uh, there's a mob of people, like there usually is, that aren't happy with the, the preaching of the gospel. And when they found them not, they drew Jason. They're looking for these apostles. They can't find them. So they take Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And they, 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 they totally and completely turned the world upside down. You say, Oh, that was just a figure of speech. No, it's not a figure of speech. They literally reached the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, some have said that that meant the known world. Okay, now again, I understand what they mean by that. They're saying, you know, that Rome was the great power of that time and they were the world rulers and therefore they reached all of Rome. And that included a number of provinces and so forth around Rome and all of that. But, but see, I, I'm convinced that when it talks about the world that it means the world. I believe that the gospel went to the entire world. I believe that everyone had opportunity to hear the gospel and to either choose to accept or reject it at some point here. Uh, very early on in church history. Now, consider these estimates. The world population at, at the birth of Christ has been placed at anywhere between two and 300 million. Okay, two and 300 million people on the earth. Uh, they're saying around the days of Christ when he was on the earth. Now, now here's what you got to understand too, though. Based on these numbers, the, from what I can tell, every number that I was looking at, the estimate is based on the idea that the earth is older than 6,000 years. Okay, it's, it's based on, you know, the earth is, let, let's just talk, take the last 600,000 years of history, figure it all up, and at Jesus' day it was 200 or 300 million people. Now, first of all, you'll find figures of 300 million, you'll find figures of 200 million, that's 33% discrepancy, that's pretty big already. And by the way, can I just tell you this, nobody was there, so none of us really know. But it would seem to me that if they're basing these numbers on a, from a mindset of evolution, where they're going back further than 6,000 years, and they probably didn't take into consideration a flood that totally and completely annihilated everyone, except for eight people just a couple thousand years earlier, um, probably, more than likely, there's even less people than that on the earth. In the United States of America, there's 322 million people, just in America, United States. The whole world had less than that when Jesus was here and the apostles were preaching this gospel. I believe that every single person 
heard these truths. <clears throat> I don't think the world was quite as big as it is now in the sense of spread out as far. I, I don't believe that. I, I think there may have been pockets of people here and there, so forth. But as a whole, civilized mankind, where people actually lived, were they were pretty pocketed. They were, you know, they weren't necessarily, you know, six million people in Antarctica living in, you know, uh, igloos or something like that. You know, I mean, it it was wasn't quite like it is today. I mean, you got over seven billion people today. So when we think about reaching the world with the gospel, it's a totally different mindset than what would have existed in that day. Everybody, the world got the gospel. The world heard the truth. The world made decisions. And may I tell you, there's not one culture in this world that did not at one point have an opportunity to be a Christian nation. If they are not Christian, it's because they made bad choices early on in their history. God's plan always includes the world, and his salvation plan does as well. Now, when I was in the military, and if you're a Marine, you're still a Marine, but when you're in the Army, you're out. And you're happy. At least I am. I, I, that was tough for me, you know. Uh, taking orders from some people were very, was very difficult. Some people, it wasn't hard at all. But... You know, at least I only have to take orders from one person. But anyway, she's right in the third row. But anyway, um, no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Some of you guys believe that stuff, don't you? Because that's how you live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start testifying. Come on. That's what you're going about me. He's testifying now. Yeah. Okay, the Lord. I take direction from the Lord. Okay, but anyway. When I was in the military, general orders... My first general order, and, and I'm going to be honest, I'm going to read it because I'll mess it up. It's been so long since I've memorized all of them. I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. You know, we've been given some orders too. We've been given orders. And the truth is, is that we need to stand our post until we're properly relieved. And you want to know when that day comes? I think you know, don't you? That's when the trumpet sounds. Or when we take our last breath and we meet him face to face. I want to encourage you to, to remain faithful in this area of being a witness and a testimony on behalf of Jesus Christ. Live a life that is worthy of a witness. Live your life in a way that forces you to, to, well, be a witness and it'll force you to live right. Some people say, well, when I get my life together, then I'll start being a witness. I guarantee you, if you start being a witness now, you'll be so conscious of your faults before man that you'll probably be much more apt to deal with them than if you wait to deal with them before you become a witness. We're all called to be a witness for Christ. Let's be obedient in that area. Let's stand our post until we're properly relieved. Let's not let the devil have preeminence or rule and reign in our life and in the lives of others around. Let's be busy about sharing and giving the gospel to everyone. The world needs the gospel. And there are people that have never heard now. Generation after generation have gone by, and now there are 
billions of people that have never heard. Someone needs to tell them. Who knows? The next person you witness to could be an exchange student. The next person you witness to could be a college student that's from another country that doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ. And they may trust Christ and be saved and take him back with them to their country. I'm telling you, we just don't know. But God is still interested, and his plan always includes the world. But it always starts with me. And it starts with you. So let's do our best, fill with the Spirit. As we enter into Missions Conference, let's make sure we understand God's concerned about the world. Not just our, us, not just about ours, but about everyone's. He wants everyone to come to Christ. And so let's do our best and let God begin to work in our hearts as we move forward. Father, we thank you again for this time we've had together in your word. Help us.